So this week, it's already, this is going to be for Tuesday. So we're going to talk about employee agreements today and then contractor agreements tomorrow. And between both episodes, I want to make sure that we cover probably once, if not twice, the difference between an employee and an independent contractor. Just because you state in a contract that someone's an employee, just because you state in a contract that someone's a contractor, doesn't necessarily make it so. Ultimately, the court is going to look at the conduct of the parties um, in cases where there's a lot of moving in the gray because there are you know, benefits for an employer to class someone as a contractor, um, but really their employee. And by benefits, I mean tax benefits. Um, are those tax benefits favored by the government? No. So we need to make sure that we're acting you know, in accordance with paying the taxes that are required via our conduct in society. And if you don't like how the laws, how they are, uh, number one, first understand the laws. And then number second, and number two, once you understand like why the laws are put together, then you at least have some background knowledge and some, um, what's the word that I want to use? Some influence, I guess, some influence um, in having your voice be heard. Why would people want to listen to your voice if you're just speaking out of nowhere without any sort of grounding and sort of um, education or understanding on which that you are speaking of. So employees, contractors, that's Tuesday, Wednesday. And then I thought about Thursday, Friday, boilerplate on Thursday, just going through all those clauses. I think I can do that in one episode. Um, and then on Friday, um, it's still a surprise. So <laughs> day of Gemini's season. Okay, so in today's episode, what is an employee, what is an independent contractor, and then three agreements to consider uh, when you're bringing on employees, which now that I'm thinking about it, I should have done employee second, but here we are. Most of us are familiar with being an employee, but a lot of us are familiar with being contractors. I don't know, I'm just trying to rationalize. Um, why I <laughs> didn't think about putting contractor first. But employee, when I say an employee is more advanced, generally speaking, um, when you're starting up a business in a new functional area or you have kind of like a new idea, the first thing you want to do, generally speaking, is hire contractors because contractors are not really entering into a long-term relationship. You just kind of want to see, like, do they fit for this role? Um, there's a lot of trial and error. Do I want to expand in this area? Um, do I want to put more energy in-house in this area? And a lot of times that testing is done by hiring contractors into your business. And then once you have your processes, um, ideas for people more established, then you start hiring into uh, as an employee because an employee is a long-term relationship with a company that ultimately when done ideally, uh, an employee would be there you know, long term because the company essentially becomes the family for the employee. That's why in large corporations, culture is very important because when you lose employees, you're losing a lot of historical knowledge um, of the organization. There's a risk that the employee will take your intellectual property and in actuality that the employee will bring that to a competitor if the competitor treats them better. Um, Millennials, I've heard, don't quote me, I've just heard people say like, we're not necessarily a very like brand loyal 
um, group of people. Personally, I am personally very brand loyal and I'm a millennial. However, um, I do see that in my peers that not necessarily very brand loyal, uh, like we were, like people were in past generations. So how does this tie back to employees? Employees, ideally, they're there for the long term from whenever they start until their retirement, because ideally the corporation is like a family. Everybody's needs are being met and people are able to stay long term. So in some school organizations that I worked in, especially like high performing um, schools in urban areas, because the job is so difficult, uh, you know, a lot of these people actually end up living in the communities and becoming like family because a lot of times difficult situations bring people together emotionally. So those emotional ties hold those people there. And that's when, you know, certain school systems are recognized as the best places to work in Houston and best places to work in this, that, and third, because of the culture, the family organization, people want to stay because they're bought into the mission, vision, values of the organization and so on and so forth. It's like a family, especially when you spend more hours at work than you do with your own um, biological family or whatever people you choose to be part of your family. So that's what I mean when I say employees are for a more evolutionary advanced business. Um, another reason like employees, you're paying benefits, um, you're acting as a huge contributor to their livelihood. If you fire an employee, it's going to affect other areas of their life. You don't necessarily want to fire an employee without any warning. These are other best practices that I'm not going to cover, but you want performance reviews. You want to make sure that when someone you think you're going to fire them, that you have, give them due process, you give them warnings, you document. When I used to work in organizations, I mean, when people started getting, getting the documentation, it's like, y'all, this is, you know, you know, uh, when, when you have your annual review and you're being put on a growth plan, yeah, you know the next step is probably you're going to be fired. You better figure out what's going on either with you or with the employer, or with the relationship or whatever, if you want to continue in this position. If not, then you need to go to find another job because it's just not a good fit anymore. Uh, so that's that. Employees, and then usually there's like, you know, in a corporation, organizational structure, there's opportunities for growth, development, so on and so forth. So employees, employees versus contractors, sometimes there's this in the gray where um, you could be an employee, you could be a contractor, maybe your, your contract says you're a contractor, but you're really being treated as an employee. Maybe your contract says you're an employee, but you're really being tra treated as a contractor. So part one of this episode is how do we determine the difference or get the resources so we know how to you know, determine the difference if our businesses are landing in that gray. And then the second part of this episode will be three agreements for employees. So two places to look um, when determining if someone's an independent contractor or employee. Number one is state law. This is a state law issue. And number two, the IRS. So actually, let's start with the IRS. When IRS.gov, businesses, small business, self-employed, they have a page, just, you know, search on their website, independent contractor, self-employed or employee. So there's a big tax issue when determining this. And when people misclassify someone, it's usually because they're trying to like, you know, take advantage of the tax code or 
kind of skirt issues in the tax code. So here on this page, um, determining whether the individuals providing services are employees or independent contractors. You have to understand the business relationship. They have five different types here. Independent contractor, an employee, common law employee, statutory employee. A statutory employee means one, an employee defined by a statute somewhere. Your job description is in a statute. Um, statutory non-employee, your, your non-employee status is in a statute somewhere because there's likely been a lot of in the gray issues about your status. So your state legislature or your federal government has gotten together and it decided, look, there's too many cases in the gray. We just need to come up with some rules so we're not wasting all this time and energy in litigation. So that's statutory employee, statutory non-employee or a government worker. So they have a statement here, which is very true in determining whether the person providing a service is an employee or an independent contractor, all information that provides evidence of the degree of control and independence must be considered. On a spectrum, a contractor has more, contr uh, uh, more control over their, their work product and independence versus an employee who has less control because an employee is basically giving up their control to be part of this family that we call a corporation, a school, whatever, whatever. So facts that provide evidence of the degree of control and independence, there are three different categories. Number one, behavioral, behavioral your action, your conduct. Number two, financial. And number three, the type of relationships. This is going to be looking at the contracts and what the scope of the agreement is. And since this is Gemini season and we're talking about contracts, that is why it's really important to have contracts between you and your contractors, you and your employees, and to think about this holistically because you want to know um, what category each person falls into so you know how to bucket yourself for taxes um, and the like. So the IRS has form SS-8. If it's still unclear whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor, after reviewing these three categories of evidence, um, you can fill out form SS-8, determination of worker status for purposes of federal employment taxes and income tax withholding can be filed with the IRS. Um, and then they have here forms and associated taxes for independent contractors, for employees, and so on and so forth. The IRS even lists what happens if you misclassify employees as contractors. So if you do that and you have no reasonable basis for doing so, which means, yes, you can make a mistake, but it can be an honest mistake. Um, you took, you know, all those, the steps and, and they're going to look at that and they're going to be like, OK, like they really tried their best to figure it out for whatever reason. It just turned, turned out wrong. So we're going to give them grace and we're going to help them fix it. However, if you see something that's willful, that's when things start getting, um, uh, consequences start being laid on. So if you misclassify, you're going to have to pay the back taxes for doing so, right? IRS Revenue Code Section 3509. Relief provisions, if you have a reasonable basis for not treating a worker as an employee, and the key phrase there is reasonable basis, this is why document, 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 because you never know what's going to come up, right? So just clear the mental space and document as part of your processes so you don't have to think about it. If you have a reasonable basis for not treating a worker as an employee, then you may be relieved from having to pay employment taxes for this worker to get this relief, um, Section 530 of the IRS Code. 
And then misclassified workers can file social security tax forms. So if you, you when you're an independent contractor, you're not paying into social security. So to, to pay into social security, there's form 8919, uncollected social security and Medicare tax on wages. And then um, the last thing they have here is the Voluntary Classification Settlement Program, an optional program that provides taxpayers with an opportunity to reclassify their workers as employees for future tax periods for employment tax purposes. That's Form 8952. So I'm just going over that very briefly so you can know kind of what's on the IRS website with respect to this um, classification, at least how it relates to you filing your taxes. Now, you can also have another issue in the civil courts um, where someone is trying to take advantage of certain benefits of the law, certain protections of employees versus certain protections of independent contractors. And there's a lot of different um, areas that this comes up in. For example, there's this concept in tort law of vicarious liability. Um, vicarious liability, that means that if someone is acting within the scope of employment or the scope of doing a job for someone else and the other person, the company actually controlled what the employee was doing and the company should be responsible, not the, the employee because they were just, you know, working under the company that um, the person's going to be held liable is the company. Versus if you're an independent contractor, you likely should be carrying insurance because you have the right of control. And with that right of control, you also are going to be liable for certain things because you should have done certain things because you have the control. So as you can see, like the contractor employee, it's a spectrum and it relates to control and who ultimately should be held responsible for the foreseeable consequences of what, whatever action, whatever harm that they engaged in. So employment law is state law issue unless governed by a federal statute. Um, in Texas, because I'm licensed both in Texas and Pennsylvania, but I went to law school in Texas, so <laughs> I studied Texas law mostly on this. Um, but a lot of states are very similar in this area. There's a 20-point uh, common law test to determine if a worker is an employee um, or if the employer had the right to control or direct the worker, because um, it's about liability. Uh, and it, you know, you have to also look at the case law for your certain industry in this area. I can run through these 20 factors, but depending on the actual like situation that reoccurs in court, the courts may swing one way or another on certain factors. They, you know, in a, let's say a personal injury case in a restaurant, they may, um, really weigh heavily certain factors. So that's why you have these 20 points, but then you have to also research and understand the case law and then understand the judges and understand the geography and the cultures and the values of a particular place. So I'm just gonna run through these 20 factors. I'm just gonna name them. I'm not gonna really describe them because I think most of them will be self-explanatory, at least in a general sense. Um, going through the 20 factors so you can hear them if uh, people fall under um, these 20, you know, comparatively, if you have more control over this person under this factor, then they're more likely to be an employee. If the person you're hiring has more control, they are more likely to be a contractor. Likely in any situation, there's going to be a mix here of all grays. 
So you have to, on the balance, determine, is this an employee, is this a contractor? So the 20 factors are this. Number one, instructions. Who is giving instructions? Number two, the training. Who is giving the training? Number three, integration. Are you, how integrated, how connected are the employee services to your own business strategy, goals, vision, etc.? Number four, who's rendering the services? Um, is the employee rendering the services personally? Uh, can they assign the services to someone else? Does the contractor need to perform the service personally or not? Usually in an employee situation, you are hired to perform a specific job. That's why you have job description and you are required to personally um, <laughs> carry out that job. If I'm a teacher, I'm not going to assign my right to teach to another person unless it's a substitute. And that's within a process that's dictated by the school district. Number five, hiring, supervising, and paying. Number six, what is the nature of the continuing relationship? Is it renewable um, month after month, year after year, one job or many jobs? Uh, number seven, who determines the hours of work? Number eight, is this full-time or is this kind of like pay as you go? I can determine my own hours. Number nine, where are the services performed? Are they performed on the um, high, the hiring party site or are they performed from a work at home, the home of the person hired? Number 10, who is determining the order or the sequence of the services performed? Number 11, are there oral or written reports required? And again, we're just saying who, where does the control lie? If the control lies more on the hiring party, then you're more likely an employee. If the control lies more on the hired party, then you're more likely a contractor. Number 12, how are you being paid by the hour, by the week, or the month? Um, we know that employees are generally paid like bi-weekly. So what does this look like um, from a generally accepted societal standpoint? Number 13, who's paying business and travel expenses? Number 14, who's giving out tools and equipment? Are you using your own tools or are you using something provided by someone else, your hire, hiring party? Uh, number 15, the investment in the business. Um, an employee is usually economically dependent on the employer. You're collecting a paycheck, whereas a contractor has to set up themselves a little bit more. Uh, number 16, who is realizing, who is being ultimately held accountable for profit or loss? Number 17, are you working for more than one firm or organization at the same time? Number 18, how is the service available to the public? Number 19, who has the right to discharge um, with uh, liability? An employee can be discharged at any time without liability on the employee's part. Whereas, for example, an independent contractor, um, if the work meets the contract terms, an independent contractor cannot be fired without liability for breach of contract. And then number 20, right to quit without liability. So those are just quickly the 20 factors that Texas looks at. That's at twc.texas.gov. Um, Form C-8, Employment Status Comparative Approach. So we went over the IRS factors, federal government, and then state factors for the state of Texas. And then now part two, three agreements uh, to consider for having employees. Um, so number one is the employee offer letter. So you want to describe the position. You want to describe who you're being employed with. Obviously, you want to use the word employee it's only when you get in the gray, you use the word employee, but it looks like a contractor and so on and so forth, that you could end up in, in litigation, likely. You want to define the terms, the salary, 
the duties. Um, you want to make sure that any, you have kind of like stipulations about if you get confidential information, where you're going to do with that. Um, who owns the intellectual property? Because sometimes, you know, usually as an employee, anything you create is the intellectual property of the organizations. Like as a teacher, you may create all these lesson plans and so on and so forth, but they're not your lesson plans. They are the organization's lesson plans. You have to create something separate. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you have like teachers pay teachers in different things. Teaching is like a very, it's an interesting area because a lot of times people create things that are for their work, but then they put it on teachers pay teachers, which probably is not technically <laughs> uh, kosher. But you want to make sure that if you're in that type of position, that you have a clear kind of division of like, what is the school's and what is mine? Um, and then whether or not the school allows you to offer uh, materials in that way. If you're, you know, a public school, they probably don't care. They have lots of other things to worry about. But if you're a private school where they are enrolling students because of the specificity of their curriculum, like I think about certain private schools, they have um, certain methods. That method is probably their intellectual property. And if you share that method outside the organization, you can probably be liable somehow, some way. So making sure you detail um, the employee's terms and conditions. It's really an employee offer letter is just a specific form of terms and conditions. You're doing that in offer letter. Um, you can also you know, have an employee handbook that you require them to read, sign, do an activity with, just so you know and you have documented that everybody is on the same page about the terms and conditions of employment. In larger organizations, you can even have a meeting about this and go over these contracts in person. So that's agreement number one. Agreement number two is an employee confidentiality agreement. So you're going to be interfacing with the business's intellectual property. What is confidential information? Now, of course, you're going at the top, you're going to introduce the parties. Who are the parties? But what is confidential information? And if you encounter confidential information, how can you disclose that information, if at all? How is disclosure restricted? Um, what is the duration of confidentiality obligations? If you have a non-disclosure agreement as part of your employment, um, making sure that those non-disclosure agreements are not improperly infringing on the employee's First Amendment rights to speak. For example, I had an example of a massage therapist. She worked for as an employee um, for a, let's say, wellness center as a massage therapist. She goes out and forms her own massage therapy business. Um, she's going to be competing in the marketplace. Sometimes reasonable non-disclosure, non-compete agreements says you can't operate within, you know, 50 miles, 20 miles, whatever your state law is or state case law um, requires. You can't operate within this many miles to be a direct competitor, to try to kind of protect um, the commercial value of the company. If those stipulations are not in there, they can set up a shop right next door to you. So if you're a business owner, you want to consider that. Do you want your employees leaving to start their own businesses? Um, but that usually happens when you're not taking care of them as an employee because starting your own business is not easy. So if people are leaving to start their own businesses, you're not taking care of them um, culturally, 
um, pay. There's usually some some issue. They're not feeling connected to you. They rather go out on their own. They feel like they have. Um, what am I going to say? They they're moving more in agreement with who they are. They're you know feeling more connected and so on and so forth with themselves uh, because they're not connected to you as the business owner as their family. So they need to just start their own. And then security, exit obligations. So exit obligations means what happens uh, when you decide to leave the company, have an acknowledgement, sign date, and so on and so forth. Um, anything else about the confidentiality agreement? Yeah, I would say like determining IP rights. And um, yeah, I think like the big thing here is not infringing on the person's First Amendment right. They have the right to start their own business. They have the right to go and participate in commercial speech. Um, and you want to make sure that your non-disclosure, non-compete doesn't kind of go overboard. So employee confidentiality agreement. The third agreement is the intellectual property and work product transfer assignment agreement. So I'm not going to go through these factors in the same episode. But whether or not you have a work made for hire, um, work made for hire means your contractor are going to make the work, but I'm going to actually have the intellectual property rights. Includes like patents, patent disclosures, inventions. So let's say you're working as a scientist, as an employee, and you make a discovery using the employer's equipment and they gave you the objectives and gave you the scope for this discovery. Um, and you discover like just novel, novel um, cure to some disease that we are looking for a cure for a cancer, whatever. And you do that in the scope of your employment. That patent belongs to the employer, not you. And um, because you're using their equipment, you're, you know, being directed by them and so on and so forth. It's like control and direction. Same thing with like trademarks, service marks, trade names, logos, corporate names, copyrights, all of these things. If you write something like I wrote a grading policy within the course and scope of my employment as an administrator, that grading policy is not mine. Those files need to stay with the employer. I can't technically speaking copy that onto my computer and then save it for later. No, because I made that within the course and scope. And so for me, um, Going back to my teaching days, the school provided me a laptop and then they had my personal laptop. And that's just like another indication that if you're working, you should do your work on your school laptop. But if you have personal things, you need to do that on your own personal equipment, because technically speaking, you're not supposed to use the work equipment for your own personal uses. Now, the real life, I mean, people are checking your personal email and all these things on their work laptop. However... You know, as I, I did that, I'm not going to, in your younger years, you're like, okay, you know, why does this matter? If no one really explains this to you, but then once you like move on up and you start learning more about the world and how it works and how um, to, to cover yourself, so you're not ending up in like really disastrous situations, you realize like, okay, there needs to be clear lines here. There needs to be black and white because I don't want to risk anything. And sometimes when you're working in black and white, you actually have more freedom because you know exactly what is expected. You don't have to like have all these mental tabs open to make all these micro decisions. You just know, okay, in this, it's binary. In this situation, I do this. 
in this situation, I do this. When I work, I'm on my, my school laptop. When I'm doing my personal stuff, I'm on my personal laptop or my personal phone, um, and so on and so forth. And I think that also in a school situation, these are areas of gray that may need to be remedied. But for example, a lot of teachers would use their personal phones to communicate with students. And that to me is like highly problematic. Um, if you're making student parent communication, it should be done through the school phone. So like in our school, we use Microsoft Link. I don't know. It's probably called something different these days or like whatever, like the school phone. You need to use your school phone number. And when I worked at more established school districts, they had the school phone number and they would call you at your school phone number. They're very clear, black and white, about when you talk to students and parents, it's through the school portal, it's through the inner internal communications, not your personal communications. But when I was working in schools that um, were more low income in the urban areas, there is more in the gray. So we have to we have to be careful because when you're working in the gray, that's when you end up on the news as a teacher. And you can apply the same example to whatever industry that you're working in. Uh, okay, so intellectual property agreement, who's transferring the rights. And here they have work paid for hire. The employee acknowledges that to the extent permitted by law, all work product consisting of copyrightable subject matter is a work made for hire as defined in the Copyright Act of 1976 found at 17 USC section 101 and such copyrights are therefore owned by the employer. Um, assignment, can you assign, duty to cooperate, power of attorney. Um, I'll go over this more, power of attorneys in, I guess, cancer season, but what is in the power of attorney to execute and deliver um, any such documents on the employer's behalf in the employee's name and to do all other lawfully permitted acts to transfer legal ownership of the work product to the employer. So let's say you're working in the course and scope of employment, you need to sign a contract, um, you're signing on behalf of the employer and that is within the scope of your employment. It also like helps sever liability for exactly for that like vicarious liability aspect is if you're working within the scope of employment that the employer is responsible for that. The employer is not responsible for criminal acts because that's not reasonably foreseeable or should reasonably lie within the scope or the risk bubble of things the employer should be held accountable for. However, um, if you're working in the course and scope, usually goes to the employer. If you're not working in the course and scope, if you're an independent contractor, it's going to go to you, so have insurance. Um, sign, date, both parties, in the end. So those are the three, three agreements, offer letter, um, offer employee handbook, review, sign, acknowledge, however you want to do it, the intellectual property agreement, and um, what was the, sorry, it's like a long day. Oh, the confidentiality agreement. I kind of like merged those two together. So confidentiality, intellectual property, and the offer letter. And then we went over the IRS classification of independent contractor employees and then the state law um, distinction between employees and independent contractors using the state of Texas as an example. So I think today was a longer episode. I'm at 30 minutes showing right now because there's a lot. I just wanted to take one day to do this with employees. So tomorrow I'm going to review again 
distinction between employee independent contractor, just a review, not kind of like the deep dive I did today, um, a little bit quicker. And then I will go through different contractor agreements, um, VA agreement that's domestic, overseas VA agreement, because now you're dealing with international law and just a general contractor agreement. And then that will cover us up to Wednesday. Thursday again will be boilerplate and then Friday will be a surprise to end Gemini season. Thank you all for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye.